All right, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to PTH3. This is the third course in the physical therapy track. It's addressing altered sensory perception, a missing piece to the pain puzzle with our esteemed faculty, Marcos Lopez. He's a physical therapist. Take it away. Hey, guys. Whoa, holy cow. I told you I talk loud. <laughs> Man, all right. I guess I'll just talk a little softer. Um, thanks, everyone, for coming. Uh, as pr probably every other presenter said today, it's Saturday, so I'm thoroughly impressed that we've got a decent turnout. Uh, today we're going to talk about sensory perception. Okay, so um, I have nothing to disclose. A little bit about me. I'm a physical therapist, primarily practicing in the outpatient setting, but I'm also uh, getting into the addiction medicine space and working with a company uh, to provide PT services and patient education sessions uh, for those that are participating in this taper process. Uh, I think us as physical therapists uh, have a very unique skill set and can do some real good in that, uh, in that setting. The objectives, um, you guys have them. I'm not going to uh, necessarily read them. The goal is to just have some good dialogue and some conversation, hopefully further elucidate the complexities of pain as if it wasn't already complex enough. And for those that are in... Uh, practicing as physical therapists or those that are referring to physical therapists, hopefully give you guys an idea of some other things, tools, strategies that we as physical therapists or maybe even you guys can provide within your own uh, clinics to help treat, uh, treat and address patients with chronic pain. So what I want everyone to do first before we start is I want everyone to close your eyes. Okay? Everyone close your eyes. Raise your left index finger and touch your nose. Okay. Now open your eyes. So in my head, I thought about hiding and then surprising you guys. That's why I stood up here, but I decided not to go with that. But the point of that is that the question is then, how do you know where your nose was, or how do you know where your nose was if your eyes were closed? Right? That's the real question. And that's the whole point of that little experiment is there's this thing called the somatosensory homunculus. If you guys might remember that, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. And it's an area in the brain that's responsible for identifying where we are in space, okay? Um, as we're talking about sensory processing, that's just going to be one piece of the puzzle. Uh, but it's uh, important to consider uh, when we're talking about people who experience pain. So the definition of pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience unique to uh, each individual. Uh, associated with actual or potential uh, tissue damage. So the emphasis or mine, that is not from the IASP, but it's very important emphasis points because if you notice, there's some key words, right? A sensory and emotional experience, right? We're dealing with human beings. We're not dealing with body parts. And there's emotions associated to what we're feeling. Sensory component, right? Tightness, stiffness. Uh, achiness, feels like ants are crawling on me, feels like I'm getting stung by bees. Like, you know, there's so many interesting descriptors that you might hear patients say, and it's unique to their, to within themselves and what they're experiencing. So we can't discredit or discount what it is that they're feeling. But we never really have people come in and just say, you know what, I'm feeling kind of weak, right? Um, and if so, that's usually the rarity. Or we might get some people that come in and say, you know, I'm feeling like my hip is out of alignment or my, you know, SIs out of malposition and things like that. And I'm going to give you guys some insight in regards to why I think people have that bodily perception, even though we know 
that the body is extremely resilient and robust, and it can't just slip in and out of place. Um, associated with actual or potential tissue damage, right? So the threat of tissue damage alone can trigger pain. Um, and then actual, obviously, right? Just uh, if you actually stub your toe, you may or may not have actually caused tissue damage, but you stimulated a response that could trigger pain. So Louis Gifford proposed uh, the mature organism model back in 1998. And his framework was based on how we experience pain. But really, it's all about the human experience. It goes beyond just pain. And what he described was the central nervous system functioned as a sample scrutinized action center, meaning our nervous system is constantly scanning the environment, bringing in information, processing it up, uh, processing it up to the brain, sampling that information, and then determining what's the next best step. Hence, action, right? With that, we have multiple mechanisms at play, and I just highlighted a few behavioral responses. And if you put your hand on a hot stove, you're going to have a withdrawal reflex to help you not feel pain or get burned, right? So that behavioral withdrawal response then becomes an embedded memory within the sample scrutinized action center. It becomes a neural signature, a neural tag. So the next time you're, with it, you're in that environment, it's familiar to you. Your subconscious is processing this information. And if you get just close enough, you're going to feel that heat even before maybe it's at the same temperature that it was before. Right? It's a protective mechanism of protective withdrawal. There's physiological responses to this. And we're going to highlight some of the neural, you know, biological neuroplastic changes associated within the nervous system uh, as, an, uh, as an effective of pain. Multi-system, we know that the endocrine system is involved, we know the GI system is involved, we know the autonomic nervous system is involved, we know every system in the body is constantly scanning information, and then our body is trying to process all that information to maintain homeostasis or allostasis, right? And so, as we're processing all that information, it's largely driven by our senses by our sight is one of the largest drivers in regards to influencing what it is we're experiencing. Uh, touch, you know, sound, so on and so forth, they all interplay together, constantly sampling the environment and embedding these memories or neural signatures associated to activities, to immune responses, to you getting sick, to you learning how to shoot a free throw, um, to you burning your hand on the stove or to you bending forward and feeling a backache, and then it becoming embedded uh, over time. So now we're going to talk about the cortical body matrix. So the cortical body matrix was proposed by Laura Mimosley uh, a few years back. And what he describes the cortical body matrix to be is the illusion of the self based on the brain's representation of the body and the integrity of the body itself. Um, <clears throat> The way that we have this uh, representation, it's based on homeostatic brain areas that function dynamically. So integrating your peripersonal space, integrating somatotopic information, so some of the senses and what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, as well as body-centered spatial sensory data, right? So identifying where your body is in space. Hence, I close my eyes and I know that I can find my nose because I know where it is, right? Um, 
the body matrix maintains its regulation and protection through biological, behavioral, and perceptual mechanisms. And that's some of the stuff we were talking to that comes from the mature organism model from Louis Gifford. So Lorma Mosley and Vallejan then proposed the imprecision hypothesis. And this is a good framework for the concepts of magnified pain states or centralized pain states or central sensitization. And what they proposed is that the imprecision leads to greater difficulty in differentiating signals of threat or signals of safety. So they, they, with the NOI group, they call them DIMS and SIMS, dangers in me, safeties in me. But really what this is saying is that if you consider the context of the mature organism model, constantly scanning information and then cycling that through, creating an action plan based on what is being processed, if we're processing all that information imprecisely, it can lead to erroneous defensive responses, right? So you can have an overprotective alarm system or an overprotective central nervous system. Some of the things that factor in to that imprecision is pain, immobilization, perception of threat, all these can disrupt the cortical body matrix, contributing to perceptual, sensory, spatial, and motor dysfunction. Okay? So what this is stating is that the illusion that we're creating within ourselves is not really what it is. Right? And that's when you think of like people that have like high catastrophizing thoughts. Like uh, you know, kinesiophobia, fear of movement. They're fearful of movement because the things might hurt. So the actual perception of where they are and what's happening is going to impact the sensory experience. But then also, all the sensory, like true sensory information that we're getting can drive that experience as well. So just to remind you guys, this is what the somatosensory homunculus looks like. Areas that are largely represented are the hands, feet, and the face. <clears throat> this is a 3D version of that. Okay. Once again, hands, feet, face are very largely represented. What you'll notice here, and this is me hypothesizing based on theory, based on what we know, is look at what you don't see here. You don't see your back. Why don't you see your back? Well, because you never look at it, because it's literally behind us, right? So if you're considering the imprecision hypothesis and information that our body's constantly getting, the only stimulus you get for your back is when you're sitting at work, Maybe you're stressed out, and uh, you know, and then you start feeling un on edge. And the, the information that we're getting, specifically to our back, not to mention all the societal information that we're getting, that we're fragile, that we're weak, the context surrounding the environment of the back is not good. Now, throw it into a nervous system that never looks at it. Inherently, it's probably going to be a little overprotective of it. With good reason, the spinal cord is there, and all of our peripheral nerves come out of our back, right? But if you consider that in the context of the somatosensory homunculus, cortical body matrix, identifying where our body is in space, maybe this is a, f a reason why back pain, or at least a contributing factor as to why back pain can be such a big issue. So some of the things that we're going to highlight are how discriminative touch, vision, and even auditory stimulation impacts uh, patients uh, and individuals' perceptions around pain. So clinical measures of these neuroplastic changes are evident, uh, evidenced with functional MRIs, tactile acuity, and spatial awareness. Okay? What I do clinically, uh, because I 
can't order MRIs, right? But what I do clinically is I measure tactile acuity, so your ability to accurately process discriminative touch. And we use this, uh, we use a two-point discriminator, okay? And so um, that's what I primarily use because you can actually measure the distance, but there's also a localization grid that you can use to identify people's ability to, to differentiate stimulus and discriminative touch. What we're seeing is that um, patients or people's altered perception or ability to differentiate touch is driven by that imprecision hypothesis, and it's a manifestation of the altered somatosensory processing, which has been evidenced with functional MRIs where they see changes in the S1, so the somatosensory homunculus. And we know that our discriminative ability is dependent on the integrity of the S1. So if you're having these changes associated to pain, you're not going to be processing information correctly. Information as subtle as just touch information, that can then become magnified and become perceived as more of a threat. So this is a grid that uh, Kat Lee and their group, they do a lot of the research on this stuff. It's a rheumatology journal where they uh, provided reference norms for most of the body regions. So this is a reference point that we utilize in clinic to identify if someone has uh, impaired uh, sensory tactile acuity processing. Normally, if symptoms are asymptomatic, we'll then use the uh, contralateral side to get a baseline to be able to compare, you know, left versus right. This is an example of like a, lo a localization grid that is shown at the back, and more studies are being done on shoulders and knees, where they're using this as a method to identify the ability to discriminate touch, but also utilized as a treatment option, which we'll discuss here in a few. So in regards to spatial awareness, that's identifying where your body is in space. That's that whole concept, close your eyes, use your index finger to touch your nose. When we're talking about hands, feet, or the spine, most commonly we assess this with laterality. Can you differentiate the left hand versus the right hand? Can you differentiate if a spine is side bent to the left or rotated to the right? And what we see is that in people that have persistent pain, they lose this ability uh, pretty, pretty evidently. So some of the conditions that are uh, well evidenced that have demonstrated these neuroplastic changes uh, are these listed, and we're going to uh, walk through some of those uh, here in a second. So the neuro neuroplastic changes that we're talking about are cortical reorganization. Okay, so that's the concept of sensitization and cortical disinhibition. Um, I'm sure at some point you guys have been here all week, and if you haven't heard of the term central sensitization, we're going to review it here, but it's augmentation and amplification of of threat signals, right? Based on the foundation of that imprecision hypothesis and what we know that it leads to heightened level of sensitivity at the spinal cord and at the brain. Cortical disinhibition, that's your inability to downregulate those ascending threat signals, if you will. So these were first studied um, with phantom limb pain with functional MRI. And they've also been looked at with CRPS, carpal tunnel, chronic low back pain, and fibromyalgia. What's important to note, clinically speaking, is what they found, uh, Mosley and, and Floor, is that for fibromyalgia and chronic low back pain, this type of cortical reorganization correlates to chronicity. Now, when we're talking more about neuropathic pain, it correlates to the magnitude or the severity of the pain. 
So you can have someone that has really nasty neuropathic pain that's had it for a couple days, and they can have potentially more cortical reorganization compared to someone who's had chronic low back pain for three years. But what we know is that with chronicity, fibromyalgia chronic low back pain, it's based on chronicity and neuropathic pain based on magnitude of pain. So as I discussed, um, as you guys may have heard, you know, it's a central sensitization is that idea of that augmentation of the amplification of pain processing. What we also see is altered sensory processing, which is what we're essentially talking about considering the imprecision hypothesis, but then also just uh, we're going to talk about sight, touch, and auditory stimulation. What's important, too, is that you have um, increased activity in brain areas that are involved in acute pain, but increased activity in regions not involved in pain. So people with central sensitization, you know, we know that there's typically the nine areas of the brain that are associated with the pain response. Well, you can have that where that spreads and starts to uh, impact other regions of the brain. The clinical presentation is allodynia, hyperalgesia, secondary hyperalgesia, and those funky pain characteristics. Allodynia is that pain full stimulus to a light touch. Uh, hyperalgesia is, you know, if I flick you in, the, in your arm and it usually hurts a 1 out of 10, that might make it hurt a 5 out of 10. Secondary hyperalgesia is where pain starts to spread, starts to become more diffuse. If you consider the somatosensory homunculus, recognizing and remembering that some of the body regions are closely related to each other close by, right? If you think the hands, face, feet, and how it's set up in the brain. Um, there's some pretty unique studies where people with really nasty neuropathic face pain, they treat it by doing sensory discrimination change, uh, treatments to the hands because the hand is right next to the area of the face and the brain. And so by the inability for any stimulation to the face because it hurts so much, you treat the hand and you improve the accuracy and the sensory precision of the hand reduces the face pain, vice versa, treating pelvic floor pain by doing sensory discriminative touch to the feet because that's what's adjacent to it at the brain center. Um, so there's some pretty unique, interesting studies, and it's important to remember, that's why I showed you guys at the beginning, the somatosensory homunculus. Conditions of pain hypersensitivity of no clear ideological factor and or peripheral pathology. So if, you know, if we're getting patients coming in the door and they've got a past medical history of a few of these things, we're already starting to think they're more susceptible or likely to have a heightened state of their nervous system, possibly central sensitization. Contributor, uh, central sensitization is thought to contribute to inflammatory pains, neuropathic pain, and migraine headaches. So more on these cortical changes, right? These neuroplastic changes associated with pain. Well, in this context, we're talking about immobilization. And what they see, uh, what this study saw, is that you had instant rapid reorganization of the sensory motor sy uh, systems when the shoulder was immobilized. And it also contributed to impaired uh, skill. Now, what's interesting is how many of our chronic pain patients are just self-immobilizing themselves, whether it's through fear of movement, whether it's catastrophic thought, whether it's the pain itself, and they've just self-immobilized. Um, I think Kate might have talked about some of the stuff with low back pain. And, and you know, how many times are the research we know shows that people that are more fearful and have persistent low back pain have hyper-rigidity of their spine. So when they go to move, they're not actually flexing and moving their spine, so they're self-immobilizing their spine. Well, guess what's happening at a cortical region? 
that area is becoming less and less precise. Now, it's in an area that you already have a high level of pain, so then guess what? That's going to become amplified because then the brain's trying to identify that sensory information. And not only is it trying to do it, but it's trying to do it extra hard, so it's going to ramp up that system even more in a manner when the, process, when the information that's coming in is just not being processed correctly. Now, this is a really interesting study because then this looked at, this uh, Chang et al., they tried to see, all right, we, it's like we know there's changes in the somatosensory homunculus. That's very well evidenced. So are there changes in the primary motor cortex? And what they found is that inconsistent studies, long story short, it's inconclusive in patients with chronic pain. So in my world of physical therapy, you know, we're talking about is it, uh, you know, normal adaptations, people get more stronger on one side, like Kate was talking about earlier. So what got me with this, this is the question that was posed in my head after I read this study. Well, is pain primarily a sensory perceptual issue versus an actual motor function issue? In the physical therapy world, we're taught to treat motor impairments and motor functions, and sometimes people get better. So we were correlating that it was the motor impairments that led them to get better, but maybe the motor changes or the mo treatment of motor dysfunctions was leading to improved sensory perception and sensory processing, which then reduced the pain. So maybe it had nothing to do with their ability to do certain squats or whatever it was, but it was the fact that they were processing information a little bit more clearly. And maybe guidance and having less catastrophic thought, less fear of movement, et cetera. Um, but it's just something to consider. So specifically to low back, and we're talking about decreased uh, cortical precision, uh, when we're talking about discriminative touch, specific with uh, low back pain and in conjunction uh, with fMRIs, patients were, what they found was in this Mosley study is that patients were unable to move their back without also moving their pelvis. So that's that idea that they're not flexing their spine, right? They're just moving their hips, but their back's not moving. They also had impaired two-point discrimination. What was interesting about this is that they had decreased processing at the site of pain. So if you have left-sided low back pain compared to right side, they had site-specific impaired sensory acuity, right? They couldn't process discriminative touch compared to the asymptomatic side. But what was also interesting is that not only was it at their back, it was at areas close to that region not being in contact with their back, i.e. their hand. So they measured discriminative touch here as well as here, and here close to the side of symptoms, it was impaired. So once again, these things are spreading based on the representation of the cortical body matrix and where that body, that region of the body is in relation to other regions. So the cortical imprecision you know, may lead to chronic pain via overgeneralization of protective responses is what they proposed with, with this article. This article here looks at sensory acuity and spatial awareness. So they had patients draw out their back. And what they, they left this area and this area open. And so they were told to draw out what they perceived their back, where their back was. And those that had persistent pain were unable, they felt like they did not have that, that representation, so they didn't connect the dots. What you also see in this exact area 
is that it's associated to where they had their levels of pain, but also associated to impaired two-point discrimination. So they had altered spatial awareness of where their back is, and they had decreased sensory acuity or uh, discriminative touch. This uh, systematic review came out, uh, what year is it, 2018? Came out last year. And it, what they found was that patients or people that have persistent low back pain had a significant difference in regards to their tactile acuity compared to controls by 9 to 10 millimeter difference. Um, <clears throat> this was at site of symptoms and at site specific to their low back. What this study found was that patients who have an acute on chronic episode of low back pain, they had a hard time identifying spatially where their back was, but also identifying other backs. So you get the picture of a back that's rotated to the right, side bent to the left, and they cannot differentiate where that spine is positioned. <clears throat> so once again, we're having altered processing, imprecise processing, which then can lead to overgeneralization of any form of stimulus, whether it's physical, non-physical, whether it's um, touch, whether it's sight sound, that leads to this magnification of, of, uh, of symptoms. For knee OA, a subgroup of patients in hip and knee OA, 30 to 40%, demonstrate widespread pain, fatigue, sleep disturbances, cognitive difficulties consistent with manifestations of central sensitization. I know there was a talk, I think, on Thursday um, that I did not get to go to, but it sounds like they presented some of this type of information, reminding us that we're treating human beings and we're treating nervous systems, not just knees or body regions, and that maybe with these folks, if we address some of these underlying comorbidities, their pain would reduce. In regards to the context of this course, we're also seeing that these folks also have impaired Spatial awareness, impaired tactile acuity, discriminative touch, and difficulty with imagery in regards to that body region. Um, in regards to the left versus right, obviously every knee looks the same. Every knee looks like an elbow. So what they did was they used feet. And so what they found is that if you had a left knee pain, that you were, well, it actually didn't matter. You just couldn't differentiate left versus right foot. Now, once again, that imprecision is crossing a completely other joint, a region that's completely unattached to the site that has symptoms. <laughs> Neck pain. So there's a significant difference in two-point discrimination between uh, chronic neck pain and controls. Quite a bit difference, 38 millimeters to 64 millimeters. Okay, so looking at patients who have had whiplash injuries or just chronic uh, nonspecific pain for uh, insidious onset, at the site of symptoms, they could not differentiate the discriminative touch. Before I forget, I wanted to tell you guys, because I had a really cool patient story utilizing two-point discrimination Friday morning, literally before I got on the plane to come over here. Um, I had a patient with a trimalleolar fracture, so she had surgery. Uh, on her right side, excuse me, it was her left side. And at this point, she is, she was another therapist patient, and then she got on my schedule probably after she had been at least 12 to 16 weeks out. 
we're in the phases of getting her back to running. With every single step, she doesn't really have too much pain, but with every single step, she feels it. Every step, it. It being the metal plate. And it's a nuisance, and it's painful. It's a low ache. It's nothing that she's going to seek, you know, uh, she's not going to go to the doctor and complain about it, but it's, very, it's a nuisance. She feels it with every single step. We have a fancy treadmill. It's called an anti-gravity treadmill. You could take a percentage of people's body weight off to gradually load them up. My initial thought was it was just a load tolerance thing. She's just not used to impact. She's not used to running. But then I stopped and reflected for a second. I said, well, wait a minute. She's feeling it even with walking. Um, we had done some mirror therapy stuff for her early on, which we'll review here in a second. But I hadn't checked her two-point discrimination, her discriminative uh, acuity, her sensory touch perception. At the incision and area surrounding it, it was significantly impaired to the contralateral side. We treated that for about five or eight minutes. And then she got up and she walked around and she was like, she did give me that. And I said, what? She said, I don't feel it anymore. I can't feel the plate. It feels normal. So then I said, OK. Well, then now let's, let's test this. Let's get you on the anti-gravity treadmill where you're only able to run at 60% of your body weight with a limp. And it was more pain, right? It was actual pain versus just with walking, she feels it. We get her on the treadmill, ramp it up to 80%. She ran for 10 minutes, no antalgia, no pain. She felt it a little bit. That was five to eight minutes of treatment of chronic symptoms that had been manifested possibly due to just imprecision and altered sensory processing. She could not process information correctly. And it was just this magnified response to any local stimulus. So she was really excited. I was really excited, too. So touch perception. So this is a real interesting study, because we know patients with chronic low back pain usually have chronic stiffness. Kate already gave you an insight as to why that is. But what's most interesting in this uh, study by uh, Tasha Stanton is that what they found is that people with chronic low back pain and perceived stiffness, there was no relationship between subjective and objective stiffness. So they were told, hey, can you rate on a 0 to 100 scale how stiff you perceive your back to be? And then they did a series of tests where they actually mobilized and moved their spines to see how much movement they were getting in a graded fashion, where it was going to be a little bit moderate to a lot, essentially, of movement. And what they found is that those that reported higher levels of stiffness overestimated the force by 60%, meaning they, were, they thought they were more stiff than they actually were. Right? So the feeling of stiffness may represent what they hypothesize as a protective perceptual construct. Right? We feel like we're stiff, and it's a guarding. It's a protective mechanism. Are they truly stiff? Maybe, maybe not but they feel like they are, even though you know, they may not be. And so it's all about what the, what the environment is creating for them and what their perception is of what they're feeling. This is a study by Adrian Lowe where they did five minutes of localization treatment to the lumbar spine, reduced pain and improved mobility in patients with chronic low back pain. Similar concept, they did the, uh, instead of doing two-point discrimination, they used the localization grid just like this. Patient lies prone. They're shown this, and then a therapist goes over on their back and lightly touches the grid. Hey, hey, Susan, is this one? Or, Susan, tell me what this is. This is one. This is five. This is three. So they're, they're telling you 
where they think you are, you're confirming or refuting if you are, but just the act of that is drawing so much mental attention to an area and trying to refine their discriminative touch, their processing, that what they found is just five minutes of treatments, patients had improved mobility and forward flexion by about five centimeters and a reduction of pain of two points. Uh, so that's pretty significant. Uh, from the floor. Yeah, lumbar forward flexion from the floor. Ten years of symptoms. And you get five minutes of a sensory discriminative touch treatment to reduce pain by two points and get them to forward flex by extra five centimeters. That's pretty powerful. So I threw this on here because I knew I was going after Kate. And if you guys listen to Kate's talk, changing the narrative of how we talk and how we speak to patients, the idea of nocebos. So I stole this from the movie Inception, and it's one of my favorite movies, and it's one of my favorite quotes. So it says, what is the most resilient parasite? A bacteria? A virus? It's an idea. An idea is, highly res is resilient, it's highly contagious. Once an idea ta has taken hold of the brain, it's impossible to eradicate. An idea that is fully formed that sticks, it can, it can grow to define you or destroy you. Right? Just let that sink in for a second. Think about how many times we tell our patients, Kate and I were talking about it last night over beers. We used to be, we were converts. We used to tell people their backs were unstable and that they needed to con uh, contract their transverse abdominis to be able to stabilize their spine, and that's what was causing their pain. That idea that their spine is unstable, let's consider the trajectory of that human being over the course of their lifetime. How that one idea, that one seed, Changed, changed possibly the trajectory of their whole life, of their function, uh, of what it is they were doing, right? And it goes deeper than that, and it's as simple as changing the narrative of referring patients to PT. You can try it, see if it's going to help. Guess what? They're going to fail because the idea was, let's see what happens, right? <clears throat> Now, in the context of this talk, we could talk about this for days, but in the context of this talk, it's more about actual sound that our bodies create that I want to talk about. So knee crepitus, probably the most innocuous thing that almost every person will experience at some point in their life. What this study found, and I wrote it out in detail, but in short, is patients who had knee crepitus with patellofemoral pain syndrome, nonspecific knee pain, what they found was that they had higher levels of anxiety, higher levels of kinesiophobia, higher levels of catastrophic thought. They had anxiety associated to the sound it created around their family members or friends. They had thoughts that their knee was just degenerative and it just wearing and tearing. But more specifically to us in the room, um, Catastrophic thought, kinesiophobia, but let's look at this one right here. This is for everyone in the room. Professional views. Poor experience with respect to empathy and explanation and management of their symptoms, of what was meaningful to them. You could see all the, all the other uh, things that it led to, like I said, kinesiophobia, catastrophic thought, high levels of anxiety. These are pretty powerful, so I'm going to actually read these. Something is not right. It makes you worry about the joint something that is innocuous that we know that causes no harm for the layman person who's experiencing it, feeling it, hearing it, 
This is what they're thinking. It is the fear that comes with the noise and the fear that is causing long-term damage. Think about the idea seed. This is an idea seed that they're manifesting within themselves based on what they're hearing, reading, seeing, and based on what they're feeling. It's like chalk on a chalkboard, on a blackboard. It makes you feel a bit queasy, really. The crunchiness disturbs me. It makes my skin crawl. If I was with my mom, these are Australian folks, every time it makes the noise, she sort of winces. And then, once again, specifically to us, us being healthcare providers, and this is all healthcare providers. This is physios, this is GPs, this is all of us when they, when they did this study. They just seem to, to say the noise is irrelevant. I was just completely glossed over and ignored. I suppose maybe it's because it isn't more important than the pain to them, but it is to me. So how, you know, how well are we listening to our patients and addressing their concerns, right? And considering how significantly impactful just a joint sound at the knee can be. <clears throat> so Tasha Stanton and her group, that study was a two-part study. <clears throat> Those people that overestimated the force and thought that it, they were stiff were in areas where maybe they weren't or they overestimated uh, it. What they then wanted to do is see how if they provided an auditory stimulus while their back was getting moved, how it changed their perception of their stiffness. What they found is that they had a creaky door sound. Right? So you think a creaky door, you think something stiff, it's not moving well. With the creaky door group, go figure, they overestimated the stiffness again. Now when they did a creaky door sound that decreases with each test, their perceived stiffness reduced as the creaky sound reduced, right? So just think about that. The same people doing the same test with the same amount of force, there was no change in the force, but you just put an input that said, hey, I mean, literally didn't say it, but that's what it's saying. This stiffness is going away. This stiffness is going away. The stiffness is going away. And with each time they did that, guess what? Their perception of their stiffness decreased and went away. Okay. Pretty powerful stuff. <clears throat> so visual perception. This study here is looking specifically at low back pain. Site-specific visual feedback during body movement inhibits pain. The life that we're experiencing is largely largely uh, in part by what we're seeing, right? So site-specific visual feedback is so important. Vision plays a key role in downregulation uh, via multi-sensory experience to decrease perception of threat. So in those patients that have lost the inability to inhibit pain uh, uh, perceptions of threat, visual feedback or visual input can play a key role in reestablishing that to help reduce the perception of threat. This one's looking specific at uh, cervical pa uh, patients with neck pain. Uh, this is a really cool study. So what they did is pa patients who had neck pain turned their head and at 45 degrees of movement, ow, ow, that's where it hurts. So then they put on some goggles and what happened was that when they rotated, there was two conditions. One, it overestimated the movement 
and then one that underestimated it. So what they found is that when the movement was underestimated, meaning they moved more than what they perceived they moved, they were able to move further because their visual input was so strong, knowing that if they go to there, that's where it hurts, there, that's where it hurts, that they changed it so that they actually went there, but it looked like they were there before the pain kicked in, and then vice versa. So our vision itself can play such a key role in regards to what we're experiencing. This study is all, this is, was one of those studies I read, and it like literally blew my mind. Okay, so patients with neuropathic pain, nasty, nasty neuropathic pain, we know the magnitude of pain correlates with the cortical reorganization, like we talked about earlier. Neuropathic pain and paraplegia, what they did was three 10-minute conditions of virtual illusion, guided imagery, and walking. And what they found, so the virtual illusion was this. They were sitting, and they could see their reflection with a mirror, but then there was a projector screen of their legs actually moving, so it appeared as if they were upright and walking. What they found, that after just 10 minutes, the mean decrease was 42 millimeters and 100 millimeter analog scale, so you think about four points, and so on and so forth with the other groups. But more importantly, they then thought, well, hey, that was pretty cool. Let's see if we can use this as a treatment modality for patients with nasty, nasty neuropathic pain, kind of that idea of like the phantom limb pain concept, right? And what they found is that when they did 10 minutes of treatment uh, for three weeks, that the mean decrease was 53, and at three-month follow-up, it was uh, 43 millimeters. So four to five point change. If you're having eight out of 10 pain, nine out of 10 pain down to a five, or eight to three, right? That's pretty significant. 10 minutes of treatment, three times a day. That's 30 minutes a week. That's powerful. Shoulder pain, uh, how often, you know, people here may be experiencing right now because they've been sleeping in a, in a bed and they've been traveling a bed that's not their own, and just, their shoulder's a little achy, right? You go to raise up your shoulder, and right about there, it hurts, okay? What they did with this group is that they did mirror therapy, more commonly known for phantom limb pain, nasty neuropathic-type pain, CRPS-type stuff, right? And so that's what it looks like, the treatment. That way you, you can get a better visual, and then I'll give you guys the results. But what they found was these folks did... Three, uh, I think it was 10 reps, 10 repetitions. They performed 10 repetitions of shoulder flexion in the uninvolved side. So in this case, here's the mirror. This is the uninvolved side. This guy has left shoulder pain. And what they did was they had him raise the uninvolved side 10 times, 10 reps. For some people, they took their time, and it took about three minutes. 10 reps maybe three minutes of working the uninvolved side but getting the visual input that it looks like your symptomatic side is moving in a way that is not painful, these were the results. They had a significant reduction in self-report pain, pain catastrophizing, and, and kinesiophobia associated moving, albeit statistically significant. They didn't exceed the MC, uh, MDC, but the range of motion improved by 15 degrees. SAIS, what Kate was talking about earlier, shoulder impingement, nonspecific shoulder pain. 
So that's pretty significant because their range of motion improved by 15 degrees. They had reductions in pain, decreased fear of movement. Their shoulder that hurt never actually moved. They were moving the other side, but it looked like their symptomatic side was moving. So the visual input was reprogramming their brain to say, hey, movement is okay. Movement is okay. That shouldn't hurt. That shouldn't hurt. Guess what? Now it doesn't. Or it hurts less. And I move quite a bit more. Um, what, I, what I have found anecdotally and based on the research is that this type of mirror therapy is very beneficial for patients who have pain with active range of motion like we just discussed, uh, aberrant movements, uh, patients who have pain in their back and they forward flex and they can't come back up, uh, pain with light touch or deep pressure, peripheral sensitization, prolonged immobilization or acute immobilization, and just uh, motor recruitment type stuff. So graded motor imagery as a, as a whole, has components of everything we just talked about. The discriminative touch type stuff, uh, visualization, and then actual utilization of mirror therapy. And it's thought that it essentially reduces signs and symptoms of central or peripheral sensitization by facilitating changes within the brain. This study broke it down by phases, utilized fMRI to see what areas of the brain were being uh, activated during the phases of, of uh, each component of graded motor imagery. And the idea is that as you get to the mirror therapy, it's graded exposure, you're gradually activating more and more and more areas of the brain that are specifically associated to that body region in which it is painful. Um, the efficacy associated for CRPS pain post-stroke and phantom limb pain is pretty high in utilizing GMI-type approaches uh, for, uh, to address uh, patient's pain and function. This study looked at distal radius fractures, and I included this one because uh, it's, it was a novel approach to what is thought to be a somewhat uh, common or uh, innocuous injury, right? But what we know with Lorimer Mosley's group with Body and Mind that people who have had a distal radius fracture uh, who report pain levels of a, about a 7 out of 10 are a, way more likely to develop CRPS. So what this study found was that when they compared a usual treatment to a treatment with a graded motor imagery approach, that pain with activity pre-treatment was about that threshold where it was at that 7 out of 10 pain. Post-treatment significantly reduced in the intervention group versus the control. So <clears throat> retraining the brain, even in common musculoskeletal type injuries, can be of significance because it can help reduce the likelihood of something becoming worse, of it becoming persistent, or in the case of distal radius fractures that commonly become CRPS, being able to nip it in the bud, right? This study looked at a similar type, oops, at a similar type approach for adhesive capsulitis. And really the big takeaway here is that over a couple months of quote unquote failed usual PT care, they introduced a graded motor imagery approach that include tactile discriminative touch, two-point discrimination, visualization with the mirror, and her outcomes were, for, were pretty good over the course of just um, four weeks of, of, of PT, and we see that her range of motion improved significantly, uh, pain at rest was, was gone, and her, she had reductions in fear and improved function. So a novel way to treat what is thought to be something 
that is more of a tissue issue, if you will, it's very specific to the shoulder capsule, uh, utilizing these types of approaches to, de to try to desensitize that nervous system in that painful aberrant movement pattern associated uh, to the condition. So my conclusion in short, right, pain is very complex. We know that. You guys have been hearing about pain for a week. I'm surprised you guys are still here. Um, if it was me, I would maybe be at the pool, but I appreciate you guys being here, right? Pain is very complex. Uh, there's no question about that. Do we know how to treat it? Do we know how to solve it? No. If we did, we wouldn't be here, right? But what we do know is that there's some emerging literature surrounding uh, new age, contemporary, conservative treatment options that are available for our folks with persistent pain. And my hope and my intent was to increase knowledge base of those that are physical therapy practitioners, but those that are referring us. I'm in Texas, so I cannot see a patient for physical therapy services. You're laughing. I don't know if I'm like... Okay, yeah, so I was like, I don't know if that's a stab. Like, I don't know what's happening here. In Texas, I cannot see a patient unless I have a referral from... Uh, a, uh, either a physician, nurse practitioner, GP, dentist, chiropractor. And what I wanted to do was help educate those physicians and those people here that can refer to myself and my community of some alternative treatment options that are available for treating common musculoskeletal pain, for treating persistent pain, for treating peripheral neuropathic pain, and some of the other more complex pain states that are out there. Um, so you guys have any questions? Sure. So the question was regarding joint crepitus, what are strategies around education? So first, um, to make a, a short question long, we need to identify their beliefs before we try to educate them about what we think they need to hear. So, okay, Susan, you have joint crepitus. What does that mean to you? Are you concerned about it? Does it bother you? What do, what do you think that noise is doing to your knee joint? Okay, now we have a window of, okay, we, she thinks this, she thinks that, and then we can intervene. What I typically do is do that, and then I say, hey, did you hear that? Did you hear that? You know, that's a joint sound, and, and it's normal, and it's common, and people that have symptoms or people that don't have symptoms. But just try to normalize it as much as possible. Um, and, but more importantly, needing to identify which avenue you need to approach it based on their beliefs. Uh, I play with your brain for a little bit. Can you play with what? Play with your brain for a little bit. Yes. Did you happen to go to the other lecture about the electronic signal? This morning? I did not. I was getting pictures taken, and I had to do this interview thing. My, my colleagues did, though, and uh, they might be able to answer your question. Okay.
I could buy that. Yeah. No argument there. I can buy that. And if you guys were in my buddy Jared's talk earlier, I haven't heard it yet, but I know his viewpoint. But my argument is trigger point dry needling or acupuncture is discriminative touch sensory stimulation. Right? Hey, Mrs. Jones, where do you feel that needle? Do you feel that needle? Right? Whether it's in or not, you're drawing attention to a body region and helping to improve that sensory perception in the context of an intervention that has high placebo and contextual effects that I'm sure if you guys were here, you heard all about. Um, but that's, a, you know, that's my take on that, too. You know, it's, it's, and it goes back to Kate's point. A lot of it is not what we do. It's why we do it and how we say and educate our patients on what we're doing. Going a little bit on a tangent and soapbox, but um, I'll just stop there. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. So, now, so the, the question is, describe the, how you do the intervention. Kate, that was your question, too. Very simple. I'll use my, my hand. In this case, let's say I've got a distal radius fracture on the left side. The, the, the caliper, if you remember, was a little blue device, and it widens. And so I tell the patient, I, I explain to them, I literally tell them, hey, close your eyes, use your index finger to touch your nose. And then they do that. And then that sets up the education in regards to why we're doing what we're doing. And, and I, I show them at first, hey, this is two points. Can you see that? Can you feel that? Yes, that's two. And then that's one. And then what I do is on the in, uninvolved side, I use that to get a baseline to narrow down the threshold to where they start missing, to where they're maybe 90% accurate. Then that gives me a normative value to then go to the other side and, and then what I do is then I have them close their eyes. Uh, hey, Susan, do you feel two or one? Two, correct. One, correct. So you're giving the, the affirmation, so you're getting the auditory stimulation of what is right, what is wrong, what is the point versus two versus one. As they get more accurate, you make it more and more and more narrow. And then with that gal, it was started that we did the test assessed one side, went back. She was about 50 60% accurate, so I widened it up a little bit. She started to get it, narrowed it back down to the threshold from the opposite side. It took about eight minutes, and she had that response. Okay, I'm getting, um, I'm getting this and this. Luckily, I know my buddy Jared Hall is talking next. <laughs> yeah, um, but to teach it at home, you can use a paper clip. And you can show them how to do it so they could show a loved one or a family member or a friend, and then they could do it to them. Thanks, guys. <laughs>